My name is Jess, and I'm an alcoholic. Through the the grace of God and uh, people like you in meetings like this, it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink of alcohol since January the 10th of 1990, and I was grateful for that period of sobriety as I know how to be today. And um, I always seemed like I never can think of what I'm supposed to say, and I was like, you know, just like I need to be a rebuttal witness or something up here. Um, but, you know, I, my prayer is that, that uh, some of the experiences that I'll share with you guys, um, maybe you can find the God that I've found, and you can find the grace that I've found here. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous introduced me to the God of my understanding. Um, and if it hadn't been for Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I, I, I'd be dead. I'd, there's just no. I'd, I'm just not that tough. Um, you know, so I see some of these old guys out there running and gunning for 25, 30 years, um, and just, and literally, I've, I've known a few guys who literally drank themselves to death. <clears throat> uh, a guy that uh, I knew growing up, uh, Mr. Crow. We used to. Uh, he lived about four miles out from our farm that we had, and. He used to come down and steal pears. On our, we had an orchard, a 2,000 pecan tree orchard, and three or 400 pear trees and a few peach trees and stuff. And catch Mr. Crow down there every year stealing peaches. It wasn't like, or stealing pears. It wasn't like, these things were just falling off the trees on the ground, rotten. And we'd just, you know, but he'd sneak in, you know. And the gate was unlocked, but he'd cut the fence, you know. <laughs> Really stealthy, Mr. Crow was, you know. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Crow drank, drank himself to death. And uh, he almost shot me one time. Uh, we, he told me a hundred thousand times, come on by the house and go fishing. There's lots of fish out in the little pond. You need to go out there and you need to get rid of some of them fish. And he get rid of them. Okay, Mr. Crow. So sure enough, about two o'clock one afternoon, me and a, a, a buddy of mine, Jeff Lawless, you know, Jeff. Went out there and did a little fishing, and we forgot the time. Of course, that was way too early to go by Mr. Crow's house. You know, he, he's still deep in, you know, hadn't quite woke up yet. To <laughs> he had, certainly hadn't had his first drink yet, and he didn't want to mess with Mr. Crow if he hadn't had a drink yet. And he, you know, we we're out there not thinking, you know, just not trying to be noisy, but not trying to be quiet either. And all of a sudden, we're like, what the hell are y'all doing out there? And the gun goes off a couple of times, and we're, you know, finally had to convince him of who we were and get him a drink, and everything was all right after that. <laughs> but anyway, I, you know, I'm just not, not as tough. Mr. Crow died drunk. Uh, they found him dead in his house. He'd been dead four or five days. and His old body just gave up on him. And I'm not that tough. Um, uh, just not. Uh, I'm a... I'm, just, I hate pain. I'm not real good with pain. And long-term pain just doesn't, I just couldn't manage that long. And I know how to kill myself. Um, I know how. I, I, I attempted it when I was a teenager. And uh, the only difference between then and now is that because of going to a lot of meetings and, and meeting some people who uh, prescribed an awful lot of outside issues into, their, into themselves, I know what to take today. You know, when I was 12 or 13, I didn't know what to take. I just took the biggest bottle that we had in the house, and it was about 250,000 milligrams. And 
sat on the toilet for about 35 minutes down in these pills and then finally got them all down and went down and laid in my bed, you know, hoping to die. And I woke up the next morning alive, probably the most disgusted kid you ever saw because, you know, what kind of a loser am I? I can't even kill myself. And uh, thanks to some of you guys, um, I know what to take today. You take 250,000 milligrams of Darvacet, you're done. Yeah. So I know how to kill myself. And, uh, and uh, uh, that was a, a kind of a recurring theme all through my life, too, was that I was either drunk or thinking about killing myself because I couldn't manage life drinking, but I didn't have to think about it. And I dang sure couldn't manage life sober. And that's all I could do was think about it when I was sober. But... Uh, Anyway, I grew up out in West Texas. I uh, grew up in a farming and ranching community, a farming and ranching family. Uh, we were a stereotypical, run-of-the-mill, uh, garden-variety alcoholic family. Uh, my dad was a drunk, and uh, he said that he probably became alcoholic or made a transition from a, a social drink to, to uh, being an alcoholic when I was about two, and uh, his drinking made a drastic change in, in and became necessary for him to drink every day, and he did. And we grew, we were farming. We had a section of irrigated cotton land and and uh, four or five sections of ranch land down off the Caprock in a little community called Gale. And and that was uh, in, the, in the family that I grew up with. Uh, drinking wasn't any big deal. It was just kind of what you did. I grew up with rodeo cowboys and had a couple of world champion cutting horse trainers in my family and and uh, lots of. Uh, just lots of horses and guns, and we, we went hunting and, and shooting and riding, and that's just kind of how I grew up, and drinking was a part of that. And we, my family, the, the men in my family worked real hard, and, and, uh, and they played real hard. And, and, and some families, that that's kind of, the drinking is kind of the under-the-rug kind of stuff. <laughs> Ours is out on top of the rug. I mean, we, we entertained, and, and there was nothing uh, socially wrong with what they did, and, and it just got out of hand, and... And my dad's drinking got, um, he nearly drank himself to death, and, and uh, that in, in volume nearly killed my dad. And when I was, uh, we had made a geographical change. I grew up in La Mesa, up on the Caprock, and uh, uh, my mom decided that the, the reason that they were having so much difficulty and so many problems was that my dad uh, was drinking every day with my grandfather, his, my dad's dad, and, and his cronies and the, guy that, the guys that my dad grew up with and farmed with. And if we would move two hours away from a cotton farm, I don't know if any of y'all, that, trying to farm a section of cotton land 120 miles away is problematic. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it just things just slide by that you don't notice, you know, like equipment disappearing and... You go to get on the tractor and you go, it was right here last time I saw it, you know. So anyway, we, we moved to a little town called Hamlin, and, and that's where the pecan orchard was. That my father and another one of his drinking buddies that were partners in, and my dad bought that guy out. And We moved to Hamlin, that's where I finished school, and, and that's where uh, uh, my dad finished his drinking. And on Mother's Day of... Uh, 1979, we went in and woke my dad up. My dad uh, was six foot, six one. Uh, normally, would weigh about 160, 180 pounds, and he was about 220, uh, about the color of the carpet here. And, and his feet were swollen to the point where he couldn't get shoes on, and he was about to die. And 
my mom pinched him real hard on the toe, and he jerked, and, you know, it was kind of a, bang, he's still alive, you know. Because it was, it was a daily deal. And if any of y'all live with alcoholism, you kind of know what I'm talking about. It's, you don't really want, want them dead. You know, I didn't want my dad dead, but I wanted this thing to be over. And when you watch somebody do, uh, do that to themselves, it just becomes so difficult that finally you just, you know, wish for an end one way or another. And we went in, we woke my dad up, and we said, you're going to die, but you're not going to die here. And you need to do something. And you can either, uh, leave, or we'll make arrangements for you to go to a treatment center. And he did. And, uh, you know, he, he turned a 28-day program into about a 60-day program and and uh, uh, got out, and he slipped and slid around uh, in and out of meetings, and he, would, he wouldn't drink at the meeting, but he'd drink on the way home, and, and uh, it took him about nine months to finally get to that point where every alcoholic has to get to, that point of giving up. And when he got there and... and, uh, and uh, December of 1979, uh, my dad gave up and never had a drink until the day, you know, know, February 26, 1986, when he died. And, uh, that probably 86, 88, 96, I'm sorry, 96. That sounded wrong when I said it. 96. And, uh, so, you know, you would think, and I spent about 10 years of growing up, uh, going to AA meetings. Um, my dad got sober when I was about 13. And uh, uh, after a couple of years of driving all over West Texas, going to meetings, driving to Abilene and Sweetwater and Haskell and Ashmont and all these little towns all around where, where Hamlin was, um, my parents and another couple uh, decided to start a group there in Hamlin that didn't have a meeting there. And so from that point on, uh, two and three days a week, um, there were alcoholics just invaded our house because that was the only place they had to meet. And uh, I was around AAs all the time, and I loved them. I loved sober alcoholics, and I learned so much about alcoholism and, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, but it never occurred to me that maybe you need to look at your drinking. you know. And that was about the time that uh, I attempted my suicide, had my suicide attempt, was when my dad got sober. There's much, nothing more traumatic to an alcoholic family than the alcoholic getting sober. It is a tremendous trauma because as screwed up as it is, as crazy as that life is, it's normal. You know, that becomes normal. And you, you know, I didn't know, I knew what to expect. You know, I could walk in and in 30 seconds decide whether I needed to, it was okay to be at the house or whether I needed to leave. And after he got sober, I had no idea what to expect. Um, and it was a, it was a traumatic period in my life and, and, uh, uh, but these alcoholics were coming around, and I've been to, I've probably been, I don't know how many meetings I've been to, and the, the, there's 10 years between when my dad got sober and when I got sober. And uh, I've been to lots of meetings, been to conferences, uh, met, I mean, I wish I could could remember some of the, the stuff that some of the AA greats, you know, the Bob Whites and the Jack Claters and the uh, Jim Shaw's, you know, sat in my living room and just spewed AA. And I'm like, oh, God, another one of these old, dry old farts. They don't know. <laughs> you know, I really wish I could remember and would have paid attention to some of the stuff that those guys said. Um, they're my heroes today, you know. And uh, so I went off to graduate high school, started drinking in high school, uh, 
pretty seriously. Never got into any official trouble. Um, never got a DWI. Never got anything really officially ever happened to me. It wasn't for lack of trying. I mean, I drove drunk every opportunity I had. I love to get drunk and go places, you know. Um, I went to school down in Stephenville at, at Tarleton State and uh, got a job um, working in a bar across the street from the school. Uh, I don't recommend that. <laughs> well, it was a great deal for me because I couldn't afford to drink the way I like to drink unless I worked at the bar and could steal it. And uh, so for about two and a half years, it was I drank like it got to the point where five days a week um, I drank about a case and a fifth a day for about the last year that I drank. And it sounds like a lot, but if you start about 11 o'clock in the morning and you drink till 2, it's not that much, you know. Um, and it just became what I did. And uh, we, uh, I got married to my high school sweetheart, uh, moved to Dallas to finish school, finished school, got a job. All of a sudden my drinking drew way back because I couldn't afford to drink like that. And the situation had changed. You don't drive around Dallas drunk. I could drive around Stephenville drunk, and the cops knew me because of working at the bar, and, and they just, you know, kind of looked the other way and sent us home. And, and uh, the cops didn't know me near as well here in Dallas, and uh, uh, they weren't as impressed with where I worked as, you know, the cops in Stephenville were. But, and most of my, I mean, my drug log isn't all that interesting. It's not that exciting. Uh, there were no big police chases. You know, there were, I had a dream one time. I was um, not too long ago, about well, several years ago, <clears throat> about, you know, my last drunk. You know, my last drunk, I had one drink with my mom. You know, how sad is that? You know, <laughs> you know for a macho cowboy guy like me, you know, man, you want to go out guns blazing. You know, and I had a had this kind of dream about, being chased by the police. I'm in a armored car, a convertible armored car. Um, security issue there somehow, I don't know. But anyway, I'm in an armored car, hookers out here, you know, guns blazing. That's how I go out. That's you know, that's that that makes a more interesting story from behind the podium, you know. It you just don't get a lot of AA style points for saying, Yeah, my last drunk. Let's see. I had a drink with mom. And went to bed. You know. uh, my last drunk was actually New Year's Eve of uh, 1989, and and it was just pitiful. It was just sad. You know, my wife at the time had just been admitted into a hospital for an eating disorder, and pre- the that week um, she had gone down and drove herself because I had a date to play golf in Lufkin. And I said, "See you." And that's how that's how much love and that's how much uh, selflessness was involved in me. Or that was about all I could muster. That my wife was fighting for her life, and I was going to go play golf at Crown Colony. See you. And she was in that hospital, and I went to the little bar <clears throat> close to where we were living, and and got lit, and drove home drunk one more time. And my mom had come up to kind of check on me to see how I was doing with the fact that my wife was in, in a treatment center. And uh, she and I had a drink together. And it wasn't the last drink I ever wanted, I'll guarantee you that. It was just just happened that way. And I think God knew what he was doing 
when he just kind of subtly did that. Because I, I went to my first AA meeting uh, by mistake. And I wasn't. I was trying to go to Al-Anon because my wife, you know, when when she was in that treatment center, they uncovered her alcoholism. Well, I knew how she drank, and she was a lightweight. I mean, I taught her how to drink. We sat side by side in that bar in Stephenville drinking. And if she was an alcoholic, I knew I was an alcoholic. So, but I wouldn't want to quit drinking. You know, that's kind of the key for me. You can be an alcoholic, but if you don't want to quit drinking, AA is not the place for you. I, I pretty much knew I was an alcoholic from 1982. I remember sitting in our, my driveway with another buddy of mine. We looked at each other. And said, you know, you're an alcoholic. Yeah. So are you. Oh, okay. You want another drink? Yeah. It, I didn't really care that I was an alcoholic because I wanted to keep drinking. Um, and so I go to this meeting. is actually at the, the uh, what's the, the group in Plano on, on the west side? Used to be upstairs. Odette. Odette. Went to Odette and looked in the book. I'd gone. You know, I was going to be a good supporting husband to my wife in this treatment center, and they. So I went down there, and, and um, they said, you know, you need to go to some Al-Anon meetings, learn how to be supportive. I said, sure, I can do that. So I go to, and I had been around AA long enough to know that you got there 15 to 30 minutes early. You know, that was the rule. It's damn sure the rule in my house. If you were sponsored by my dad or by my mom in Al-Anon, you went to the meeting early, and you planned to stay late. And I thought they wouldn't let you in after 8 o'clock. I thought they like locked the doors. I don't know why I thought that, but you just didn't go to meeting late. So I show up early, and the Alanons in this group on that night anyway didn't show up early. So I'm sitting in on the other side, sitting here talking to these guys, and the meeting started. I was kind of surprised me. I wasn't really paying watching the clock. So the meeting started, and my pride wouldn't let me get up and walk out and walk in the other room. So that was my first meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. About as exciting as my last drink. <laughs> <laughs> but... All of a sudden, I, I was really—I was about 30 days sober when I decided I didn't want to drink anymore. You know, uh, I've heard of a lot of people who who just stay out there and stay out there and stay out there until they just can't stand it anymore, and they come running into alcoholics and I'm saying, "I am, you know, I am done." You know, and for me, I just—I just, I just kind of slid in the back door, and I haven't had to have a drink since then. And I know a lot of people who have found it necessary to go back out and drink uh, for whatever reason. Some, I don't know why. Uh, my sponsor ruined my the idea of me drinking again, trying to convince myself that it would be okay. He's, he's, he's just got these whole pocket full of these little one-liners he'd always say. He says, if you, ever, if you go to five meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and by this time I'd been to 150, 200 meetings, so I over the line. And he said, if you go to that many meetings and you ever choose to drink again, it'll simply be because you want to be drunk more than you want to be sober. Because you will have learned enough in five meetings to know that you never have to drink again if you don't want to. Kind of screwed up my, this idea in the back of my mind. Tim talked about this. This, you know, and I always wanted to be the guy who was different. You know, I showed up here. I was young. I hadn't, I had never really caused anybody all that much. Well, I thought it, you know, in my way, I think I didn't really cause myself all that much pain. I really didn't cause that much pain around me. You know, I found out 
this was prior to working the steps. You know, my, you know, the only people in the world who use brilliant alcoholic mind. Those three words combined together are alcoholics. <laughs> Al-Anons, uh, bosses, preachers, priests, psychologists. They never use those three words together at the same time relating to us. We're the only people who say that. You know, brilliant alcoholic thinking. And is because I thought I was, you know. I just had a mild case of alcoholism anyway. You know, just a touch. You know, just a, you know, it's kind of like a light flu bug. You know, if I worked six, maybe eight tops of the steps, I'm done. You know, hang around here six years. And I will have purged myself of alcoholism and will be able, I never really thought about wanting to drink again. I just, I'm not going to the meetings. I am not going to three meetings a week for the rest of my life. I'm not. I'm, gonna, I'm sure that there are going to be things that are going to happen. I'm going to get my life back. I'm going to get back on the road again. I'm going to mass my fortune and show the world really who I am and what I am. Retire by the time I'm 28. And, you know, again, that brilliant alcoholic thinking. And, you know, I've been sober. 14 years, and I go to three meetings a week. Still, I still haven't quite gotten to the point where I can literally really convince myself that, you know, you're not that bad. Because, I go, yeah, you are. You know, you're still selfish, self-centered, and arrogant. And uh, so anyway, I started, I got sober in Plano, uh, moved from the old Ed group over to the Plano East group, and got sober there, stayed there several years, um, really cut my teeth on working with other people and it was a club it was really open nearly 24 hours a day and you could almost find somebody there 24 hours a day and it was a great place to to just not be anywhere else you know it was a great place just to go and become a club rat which is kind of what i was i i was at that place nearly every time it was open and there's a point for that it worked for me it was really great for me for the first several years and finally, I had to get out and get a job and, and uh, <laughs> you know, start doing some other stuff and taking on some responsibilities. You know, the, the, our book is real clear about what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to get back out into the community. We're supposed to get back out there, not get in here and stay in here. What we learn in here, we're supposed to stay out there and give it away to them. And them is everybody. You know, we don't just get to treat alcoholics nice. We don't get to just be nice between 8 and 9 on 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 Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You know, I have got to treat the people that work for me and my boss and my job and and my wife and my kid the way that you people have taught me how to do. Um, That wife, first wife, uh, got sober. Uh, We stayed sober and stayed sober about four years and uh, stayed married about four years after we got sober. And we just woke up and it just became painfully obvious that we don't need to be married and it's more painful for me because she's she decided and uh, <laughs> uh, became really really clear to her um, about a year before it, you know became obvious to me so we separated and i got custody of my dad uh, my dad had uh, <laughs> my dad had moved to dallas my dad had cancer and uh, he had moved to Dallas to see could do some treatments and and work. Um, the work that that we the farming and the the things that we had done all those years he physically couldn't do anymore. 
And so he got a job. He was he was driving for a courier company, and then he loved it. He just loved it. And and he had moved down and uh, been living with my wife and I and, and our daughter, and for a few months um, when she decided it'd be a good idea if we left. And uh, so we left, and my dad and I moved into a little 900 square foot apartment just right over here, off Spring Valley. And uh, what an amazing thing. Because there was a period of time uh, when my dad and I had a, uh, a hate going on that was, we were cordially hateful to each other. We could be in the same room. We could uh, speak to each other and, and support each other. and But there was this burning inside of us that was just a, a cordial hatred that was a thing to behold. And the core of that was alcoholism. Uh, you don't grow up in alcoholism and, and without some, some anger. And, and I was still extraordinarily resentful. I'd only been sober four years. I mean, you, you, you just you don't get over much in four years. Uh, maybe bad news for some of you new guys, but uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, you know, you didn't get to be an alcoholic in four years. You know, the first four years you were drinking were pretty good. Well, that's kind of backwards. The first four years of sobriety, you're going to, well, it may be all right, but for me, it sucked. Because um, I thought, like I said, I thought I was about done, you know. And But anyway, my dad and I moved in, in together, and we did some work. Uh, he and I attended lots of meetings together. And in that year and a half, um, he and I sat in the parking lot of the Big Book group, in the parking lot of that church, and uh, made amends to one another. And for about a year and a half, there was a love affair between my father and I that was amazing. Um, last thing I ever said to my father was, I love you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And I had said that to my father every day for I don't know how long. Um, we lived with each other for six or eight months, and uh, I got a, an apartment over in Dallas. And my mom had finished up some business that, that she had going in, in Hamlin and and moved down here, and so it was me and my dad and my mom living in a 900-square-foot apartment. Um, when she moved in, it was about the time I started looking for a place of my own. <laughs> Love my mom to death, but uh, she's your mom. Who wants to live with her mom, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. I know y'all, a lot of y'all know my mom, knew my mom, um, and, and y'all knew her as, as sweet honey. Um, that was her, her nickname the grandkids came up with for her was honey, and but... I remember her as, as my mom <laughs> in the in the crazy days of the late 90s and early 80s and and uh, you know my mom was a, a tremendous uh, member of Al-Anon and a, and a tremendous lady but uh, she didn't start out that way um, and uh, but anyway so I moved out and you know got on with my life and and uh, my dad passed away and. Uh, you know, like I said, the, the day before my dad died, last thing I said to him, I love you, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And he and my mom were living in an apartment. And <clears throat> the three things my, my dad was uh, the most afraid of was being a financial burden on my mom, um, not being able to work, and uh, dying and, and hurting somebody. Because we knew how he was, he knew how he was going to die. His, he had lung cancer in the... The tumor was going to eat through the artery right here, and it was when it did that, it would just be over in a few seconds. And uh, when he died, he knew something bad was happening. He, he pulled off the road and got 
off the shoulder and into the grass and uh, got out of the car and, and, and died just like that. And he was working the day he died, and he left my mom uh, a rich woman. And uh, nobody got hurt when he died. <clears throat> and that was a direct result of his participation and love for and respect of Alcoholics Anonymous. You taught him that here. You taught him how to be a father. He taught me how to be a son. I can remember a time when, uh, like I said, my father, to go from where my, I remember right after I attempted my suicide, um, my dad hadn't quite got sober yet. He was trying. And he and I, in his best attempt to be a father, and not knowing what he was doing, and but trying, he and I took a trip down to the Gulf of Mexico. We were going to do some fishing, do some father and son kind of stuff. He didn't even be there with me. I mean, I hated the men's guts. And I remember he and he was just trying to stay sober and didn't know how. And uh, he just got down to treatment, been out of treatment maybe six months. And he was down there and he was he was dying for a drink. We were in that hotel room, and he's got the Bible, and he's looking in the Bible for some kind of something to, so he doesn't have to leave a 13-year-old kid 400 miles away from home by himself so he can go get drunk. And I remember sitting there on the edge of that bed and kind of smiling and thinking to myself, good, I hope you hurt, you son of a bitch. I'm watching a man die, I'm watching my father die in front of me, and I'm thinking, good. And uh, <clears throat> ten and a half years later, I'm able to say to my father, I love you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. How do you get from there, from one place to that place? I don't know how other than Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it, you, you just can't do it. Um, the miracle of this program in his life, the miracle of this program in my life combined is what produced that. And I can't imagine getting to get anywhere else. You know, if I hadn't, if it hadn't been for Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd have missed that. I'd have missed it because I'd have been drunk somewhere, or he'd have been drunk somewhere, and I never would have spoken to him at all that day, probably. And so he he passes away, and uh, I meet meet a lady, and we. Uh, get to Dayton we date for a long time <laughs> a long time and we finally get married and and um, um, we uh, my mom is is living here and in Dallas she had a little uh, townhouse over here by Richland College and, and we get married and we're rocking along and, and uh She finds out, no, actually, it's before that. Um, my current wife had been going to Al-Anon, and, and uh, we had started a group. A bunch of us had gotten together and started a, a group, a big book group, and, and uh, my wife was attending the Al-Anon group over there, and, and my mom 
I was attending that group and, and also over here and just wherever. And uh, She found out she had cancer. And um, she had met uh, this guy and uh, Dean. And uh, she had actually met. She was speaking at a conference in Lubbock. And Dean came up and introduced her. And he had known my dad and my mom prior. And he just came up and wished his condolences and to my mom. And my mom said, well, you know, if you're ever in Dallas, you give me a call. And so sure enough, he does. And uh, I remember... You know, I thought it was hilarious. My mom's got a date. You know, <laughs> how cool is that? You know, and and uh, she brought him over to the Big Book group. And man, you want to see some antennas come up? <laughs> All the gals were like, <clears throat> "Who are you again?" You know, and and the guys are kind of you know huddled up around my mom. You know, very overprotective a little bit. And it was funny. I felt so sorry for Dean. <laughs> I mean, what a place to come into. You know. And try to have to uh, win that bunch over. And uh, <laughs> um, and uh, this is before my mom had been diagnosed, and they rocked along, and we're getting along pretty good. And you know, we're kind of an item. You know, it's kind of cool. And Dean has been sober in the program for twenty some years now. And and uh, Dean was an example to me about commitment because my mom they had no agreement between them he hadn't even asked her to marry him and uh when she got cancer and he never missed a beat he was there when he didn't have to be there you know he was living in Plainview and was coming down and staying with her when she was in baylor going through a, a bone marrow transplant he'd come down and stay a week go back for a few days come back stay a week and uh when it came time, you know, my mom um, accepted his proposal when he made it, and, and uh, she said, yeah, we, let's get married, but the bride's got to have hair. Because she was, you know, bald as Chris. And uh, and she was mom, she was not going to get married and be bald-headed. She just wasn't going to do it. And so they waited, and they got married, and, and uh, God, what a, what a life they had. And... and uh, you know, my mom and I were able to uh, to rebuild a lot of our relationship. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me everything decent in my life. I would Alcoholics Anonymous. The attitudes, the behaviors that I've learned from you guys. Some of you guys who are here tonight, you have taught me how to act. Because that was really my problem. You know, it, I've finally decided that it doesn't really matter what's going on up here. It's what I do that matters. Because I did the wrong thing for the right reason 10,000 times. And I thought motives counted. found out that motives don't really count. It's what you actually do that counts. Because there were times when I didn't want to talk to my mom. You know, um, I didn't want to go to the hospital. And uh, I talked to my sponsor, and I was like, man, I'm sick of this. You know, I'm sick of going up there every day. I'm sick of seeing her sick. And he just, well, you just got to go. And so I just went. It didn't really matter what I felt. And 
And it was in that in those hospital rooms, sitting with her and praying with her and talking to her, and that uh, I learned how to be a son to my mother. It didn't really matter what kind of mother she had been or she had not been when I was a kid. Um, what mattered was could I learn how to be a son to her. And uh, my mom passed away in December. And because you guys taught me how to be a son, I was there. I had my hand on her head when she died. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to drive to Plainview that weekend. I didn't want to drive up on a Saturday afternoon, see her Saturday night, Sunday morning, drive back because I had to be back at work. I didn't want to do that. A 12-hour drive up and back. But I did because that was the right thing to do. And that doing the right thing has caused me more trouble just doing it, you know, just personally doing stuff that, you know, when it's easier to 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 do the wrong thing or to do nothing at all. That's generally my modality. I just shut down. I just hit the couch and hit, hit the remote and don't do anything at all. And that's not what I was taught to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is an action program. Uh, Kay Gray used to tell me all the time, suggest depression starts in the butt. I thought constipation started in the butt, Kay. What do you mean? And she goes, get off your butt and go do something. And uh, she was right. And uh, Bez, I hate to admit that. Um, I love Kay Gray. Uh, she has helped me immensely over the years. She's my sponsor's wife. I made a tactical mistake. Now, this is some advice for some new guys. When, you're, when you go to find a sponsor, all right, if his sponsor is Great A. Alanon, when what you need to do is make sure she is not in the room when you ask him to be your sponsor. Because when I asked, they were both sitting at the kitchen table, when I asked, will you be my sponsor? And Kay immediately became my sponsette. And she took it upon herself to introduce her opinion into my behavior anytime she wanted to. <laughs> Which is uncomfortable at times to say the least because she has yet to be wrong about me. And I'd call her thinking, well, I'll talk to Kay. You know, Joe, no, can I talk to Joe? No, Joe's not there. Oh, good. I really want to tell him this deal. Anyway, what are you doing, Kay? And, and, and whew, um, she, she would tell me the truth. She would absolutely tell me. She is never worried about hurting my feelings uh, by not telling me the truth. Um, anyway, we... Uh, you know, what has, that's kind of where, where we are today. And, and uh, you know, if I hadn't learned those lessons, um, I would have missed it. You know, it's not what AA has given me that is important, really. It's the stuff I would have missed had I not been here. And I'd not learned what you people tell me. I remember when we were living here in Dallas, we had an apartment <clears throat> over off Preston Road. And, and my daughter, who was about five, I guess, or six, had a little buddy apartment around the, around the corner. And they came up and they had decided they were going to make their fortune in the lemonade business. <clears throat> and uh, so one Saturday afternoon, 
we went to the grocery store and we got a couple of deals of lemonade mix and got the coffee table set up, you know, a little card table set up on the corner. And, and here are these two little little chickies out there peddling lemonade. You know, I lost money on the deal. <laughs> and it doesn't sound like a big deal for a dad to sit out there with his daughter and watch her eliminate. Unless you'd have missed it. Unless you'd gone someplace, gotten drunk, and got to hear about it the next day. Oh, you should have seen them. Two little chickies out there selling lemonade. It's the cutest thing you ever saw. When I think about my dad, I think about all the stuff that he missed with me and my brother. Because he had to be drunk. He needed to be drinking. He really did. You know, when I say it's not necessary for me to drink, it hadn't been necessary for me to drink, that's exactly what I mean. Because prior to to December or prior to January 10th of 1990, it was absolutely necessary for me to drink. Because when I wasn't drinking, I was figuring out how I could kill myself or was just so miserable that I made people around me miserable. And drinking made it okay for me to breathe in and out. You know, I can remember, and I can remember just as like it was yesterday, going into that bar and, and just almost running the last 15 or 20 feet to get in that bar because I knew that within 10 minutes of taking that drink and, and going down, I could be able to go for the first time that day. And I hope I never forget that because there have been times when I've wanted to take a drink. I've been working out in the yard and the beer truck drives by and you know they got that big Miller Genuine Draft thing on ice and the sweat coming off the bottle and I'm just like oh yeah and I'm thirsty. You know that's really you know advertising works you know and, and you look at that and you go oh that would be good. And it would be good. And it would be great if I could just have one and not be thirsty anymore. But I drink one and I really get thirsty. And I drink two and it's insatiable. And, and uh, you know, a guy asked me the other night, uh, I said, well, the guy that I sponsor and the guy comes up and y'all, some of y'all heard that I stole this gag. But, uh, you know, the guy comes up and asks, would you like a drink? And you go, yeah, but I got someplace I have to be in August. The waiter never fails it. Okay, you know, and, and the gal sponsoring goes, I understand what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, because I would disappear. You know, I, I, like I told you, I went to school in Stephenville, and there's not an ocean in Stephenville. And uh, I have been drinking in Stephenville and blinked and been on a pier on the ocean and gone, <laughs> how'd that happen? You know, that's just too weird. And, uh, you know, what are we doing here? And we say, oh, we had to come get breakfast on the pier and, you know, that's somewhere around Corpus. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the things that, that I feel bad about really are the things that, that my father missed because my daughter's never seen me take a drink. She's never known what it's like to grow up in alcoholism. She's the first land fear in over 100 years, 100 years to grow up without living in active alcoholism. 
you know, and she's a great kid. Um, she cares. She cares immensely about other people. Um, she loves Alcoholics Anonymous. She loves what she grew. I mean, she grew up some in this meeting, coming here, when they're on babysitting nights, and she finally got almost old enough when we were living here to, to kind of help with some of the babysitting when y'all had that. And we had babysitting at the Big Book Group. And every Saturday night, you know, she was there and until she was too old to, you know, and then she came out and sat in the meetings. And she loves Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, so the gal call on the phone at, at the house and she'll say, yeah, oh, yeah, how you, how you doing? Yeah, good. Hold on. Daddy sponsor him. You know. And she just she uh, she's something else. And if it wasn't for people like you and places like this and going to three meetings a week, you know the old timers when I first got sober, they said there are five things you have to do to stay sober. If you do these five things, you can stay sober as long as you want to stay sober. Go to meetings, read and study the book, get and use a sponsor, work the steps. Try to help other people. If you do those five things, you'll never drink, you'll never have to take a drink again. And but if you'll do one of those things, the other four will probably happen. Get and use a sponsor. If you'll get and use a sponsor, you'll go to meetings, you'll read the book, you'll work the steps, and as a result of the steps, you'll want to try to help other people. But if you don't get a sponsor, you'll find a reason not to go to meetings. Be too inconvenient to help others. The book, once you've read it, you'll have read it. And the steps, you know, I say, I remember the first few meetings I was in. I read the steps. Okay, I'm about nine. You know, I, um, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. Step forward. You know, I could agree with the steps and and say, okay, now nine is really kind of where you got to go do something. And a sponsor helped me <laughs> with that. And uh, but thank y'all for having me out. Um, we have a life today. My wife and I. We are um, in negotiations for some property, 35 acres, um, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we're going to raise and, and train performance horses. And. Uh, that's a dream come true for both of us. She grew up in suburban Detroit, and I grew up uh, out in West Texas and trying to do this. And I couldn't in my whole life figure out how can I have some animals and some property and, and, and do this. And, uh, you know, I've done what you guys have told me to do. I get up and go to work every morning. And, uh, you know, if you go to work every single day, they'll pay you. <laughs> and they'll promote you because there's an awful lot of people who won't get up and go to work every day. I never realized that that was kind of the trick to success. <laughs> Get out of bed, go to work every day. I'm like, every day? Who the hell does that? And it's, they're called boss. That's what you call those guys, you know. And and I got up and went to work every day, and and uh, and I got 18 people calling me boss now. And uh, I thought that was a cool deal until I actually did it for about six months, and about had all of it I want. But thank you all for having me because if it wasn't for you guys, I would have missed the whole thing.